0: You're listening to Black Book Talk on KBOO Portland, the only regularly broadcast program devoted to black books in Portland or the rest of Oregon. We ask for your support for Black Book Talk and KBOO by contributing to our spring membership drive. Just go to kboo.fm give or text KBOO to 44321 or mail your check. To cable at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. And know that fortunately, whatever you give will be matched by a generous donor. And now let's get to our conversation with Jory Lewis. Good morning, and welcome to the May 2022 edition of Black Book Talk. My name is Patricia Welch, librarian emeritus, and with me this morning are
1: Jackson Ford, Bookwoman, Odie Hill, Community Historian, and
0: our guest today, coming to us from Senegal, West Africa, is Joy Lewis, the author of *Slaves for Peanuts: A Story of Conquest, Liberation* and a crop that changed history. Jory, welcome to Black Book Talk.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And you're about,
0: what, seven or eight
2: hours ahead of us? Uh, I think it's seven hours. It's 8 okay, o'clock here we just here say now? that to say
0: thank you. It's, it's the morning here. It's a bit later there. We are really delighted to have you here. Could you just give us sort of a brief introduction to your book? So much has been written about uh, slavery in the United States, but not as much as about slavery on the continent. So we would love to know you know, a bit about the book and what inspired you to write it.
2: Okay, sure. Um, so Slave Sir Peanuts uh, has for sort of its background the kind of commercialization of peanut cultivation in the mid 19th century in, in Senegal, right? So that's kind of like the the, the, the base from which we start. Uh, and then it tells the story of a, a related rise in African slavery during that time, m- some of which, m- much of which was was channeled for this uh, peanut cultivation. But it tells the story through kind of three different characters, three d- different interwoven narratives. One is the peanut itself, as we kind of trace its movement from south america to africa and understand a little bit about how it's being cultivated and how it enters into the social and economic life of the of the region Uh, the second is a protestant missionary who is a a black protestant missionary from sierra leone who uh finds himself in in senegal and eventually Starts a a mission a, a shelter for runaway slaves, in the in the capital of the colony Saint Louis, and the third is is the a local king a king uh, called Latjor, who is um, fighting against colonialism and sometimes also collaborating. And um, his his kingdom is in fact the key place to grow peanuts in the region.
1: Your book is described as a stunning work of popular history, the story of how the peanut transformed the history of slavery. Now, when we were coming up, people thought if you were talking about peanuts, you weren't talking about nothing. Tell me, is this a matter of supply and demand?
2: Yeah, I think it is in a way, right? so the. Um... I I explain quite early in the book that there, in the in the 19th century, there's this, you know, there's there's the industrial revolution is happening. There are all these reasons why in Europe suddenly they just need a lot of oil, like oil to, to grease the wheels of machines and new trains. And so you know they're they're out there just trying to get oil anywhere they can. You know they're like killing um, whales in the ocean for oil, right? And then at the same time, there's a kind of hygiene revolution, which increases the demand for oil to make soap. And peanut oil um, is is very rich in like oleic acid. Anyway, it, 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 it provides like a pretty good substitution for olive oil and a particular soap recipe that was common in France. And that's kind of how it took off. So it is, it was a question of the, there's an increased demand for peanut oil uh, and so uh, Europeans were looking for a place to buy those peanuts and it just so happened that they, they found that place in, in, in the region known as, you know, Senegal and Gambia and parts of the, the region also that we know now as Guinea. Slaves for Peanuts is about
3: history, economics, genetics, genealogy, so many things. What prompted you to be interested in writing on all those subjects about the peanut?
2: Thank you so much for that question. I have been living in Senegal, and I write about um, the environment and agriculture. And I've been spending a lot of time in the peanut basin of Senegal, a region where a lot of peanuts are grown. Um, so you know in a way it's like no surprise I was writing about peanuts it's the slavery part that's a little bit confusing for people to to see like how did those two things start to read together and you know there's you know I tell a story in the the preface um, so maybe that would be an opportunity would you like for me to read the preface now maybe I could read that part of the preface and it sort of explains that so let me go ahead and read that little portion so I you know I start out kind of explaining I had kind of an interest in peanuts. I used to. We used to eat a lot of peanuts when I would go visit my grandparents in Arkansas. And we, uh, our, our our family lore is that we had a, a, you know, we did have a farm, or there was a farm in the family, and it was my great grandfather who cultivated peanuts. But the, the family is just a. We're just like a peanut-loving fam- family. <laughs> so we just <laughs> used to eat peanuts all the time. And I have, I associate it kind of with that, you know, with those trips to to Arkansas. But then when I moved to Senegal, that was the first time I'd ever seen the peanut grown. And as I explained, I was spending a lot of time in this area called the peanut basin. So um, I had been interested in how something as humble as the peanut had acted as the motor of the Senegalese economy for so long. For more than a century, this small country had been one of the top producers of the oily legume in the world. It was only an offhand comment by a future ex-boyfriend, an agronomist, that pushed me down a slightly different path. One day, he was telling me about one of the villages where he worked, where farmers were organizing a collective. They had decided to exclude a smart and capable man from a leadership position, a man I had met on trips to the region, who was the person objectively most qualified for the job. They had excluded him because he was known to be descended from people who had once been enslaved. I flinched when I heard this. As a descendant of the enslaved myself, I found it both painful to hear about this discrimination and difficult to understand. In trying to make sense of this, in trying to understand the reasons and justifications, I started to search for other descendants of slavery, both in those peanut lands and in regions farther afield in mud houses in the village, in reed lined fields that hug the river, in high-rise apartments in Dakar. Eventually, my search and attempt to find out more led me to a series of historical records. I would have liked to say that I was able to resurrect the voices of those who had been enslaved, but writing a historical narrative about the enslaved is complicated because there are multiple layers of silences there is the fundamental silencing of indigenous voices in the colonial archives which privilege those of european officials in many of the available epic poems or oral histories that have been passed from generation to generation often tell the stories of society's elites the kings nobles warriors and important religious leaders women rarely feature in the enslaved almost never they are muted, and the distance of a century reveals only flickering spectral forms. How do we tell the stories of people that history forgets and the present avoids? Thank you. I still want to say, why would it have been taboo to talk
0: about people who were enslaved?
2: Yeah, you know, it's... um it's a it's a kind of complicated question i did write an essay um some years ago many many years ago that kind of tries to get at this question um yeah because of course it's not taboo it's not necessarily taboo for say black americans to come back and and sort of talk about enslavement in fact there are these well-known monuments to maybe let's not call them monuments so like they're well-known Places of memory to think about, like the slave trade. So, like on Goree Island, exactly. There, there's a very well known kind of tour people take of this, yes. this building, reputed to be a uh, slave depot. You know,
0: the point is, of no is, return. When you, uh, yeah, I, I've been to Goree, yeah, and that's how it's described. It's like, yeah, this is the lab. This is the first image that you see of the this, the waters that will make you depart, and you turn. It's the last image that the enslaved saw of Africa but so yeah. that's okay but, but that's like a little bit of the, a
2: fiction it's a thing <laughs> because of course it wasn't really a slave people but anyway that's neither here nor there <laughs> no we want to learn this is what this no, show is about it's well truth. known there's a kind of like historical kerfuffle people historians several I don't know like 20 years ago a historian sort of debunked this story because he was like Even just look at the, look at the house, it's like next to a bunch of rocks, no, no ships docked at this house, you know, so it's just like, come on, man, you know, (laughs) but it's a, it's a site of memory. And I think like as a site of memory that functions, even though it's a kind of, let's call it a historical composite, let's say. Okay. But, um, yeah, you know, I think that there's something There is something kind of Uncomfortable to think about it, You know, I discussed it, not in this book But in that, that, that essay I wrote some, some Years ago And that there is this kind of stigma That still attaches to people Who are known to have been Enslaved, and it's difficult to understand I think from, from, from The distance of America um, There uh, I guess is it it's seen as somehow A weakness well, let's, is it a weakness? That's a good question. No, it's more like, so there's a question of hierarchy, more or less. At least in, in my experience, you know, it's funny. I even have a, I have a little like poster board here. I used to have this little.
0: And, you know, um, I, I don't want to take us too far away from the actual okay, book. Yeah. It was just sort of interesting to me. But I also know that my colleagues also have questions. So I don't want to yeah, tie yeah. up all of our time okay. on this. But it is just just interesting to me.
2: But yeah, let me let me just yeah. I think it's just there's a kind of stigma that's related to a kind of hierarchy. So that the that that enslaved people sort of fit in at least enslaved people in this context fit into a kind of hierarchy, and that hierarchy remains, and especially in local context. So in in a village rather than in a city. Okay, that makes sense.
1: When you mention the hierarchy. Uh, you talk about the differences of opinion as it relates to heathens as opposed to uh, the hierarchical Christians. Um, You talk about the uh, agungun and and things that most people aren't even aware of uh, happening on the uh, west coast of Africa and now what we call Nigeria now. Tell us about the Yoruba.
2: Yeah, so the Yoruba sort of enter the story through the personage of the, are my main, I would say he's kind of like the heart of the book. He's um, the kind of character around which most of the book is structured. Uh, this man called Walter Taylor, who was a Protestant missionary. For, uh, for a French Protestant mission, but he himself uh, was from Sierra Leone. And he was a man of liberated African origin, which, um, which was a phrase I wasn't familiar with before I started doing this research, but it's um, the people who had been rescued from uh, slave ships and then resettled it outside of Freetown or in Freetown in, in, in the villages in the mountains outside of Freetown. So um that's his background, his own particular family. They were from, you know, they were from he says, I think Abiokuta. So they then they were they were Yoruba speaking. There was no, you know, strangely there was no such thing. People wouldn't have organized themselves as Yoruba as such, but they spoke a language called, you know, that now we recognize as Yoruba, right? So um yeah, that's how it happened. He was many of the people who resettled in this particular village called Hastings had similar backgrounds, spoke a similar language, uh, continued to worship the same types of, of deities that they had worshiped and had known in the other region where they'd come from, from the from the Yoruba areas, the Yoruba countries and uh they continued in some ways for some amount of time t- to continue those practices you know and in fact i, I think in, in sierra leone sometimes you still do see uh this kind of like practice of the of the the agungun, the agungun masquerade still do happen occasionally yeah so i think that's that's the relationship the, there were a number because of sierra leone was a british colony and there was a really heavy presence of Anglican missionaries they tried over many years to kind of stamp out <laughs> like their indigenous practices uh, but they still kind of remain and which is interesting because of course Walter Keeler when he comes to syngal and becomes a, a missionary a missionary there's a kind of similar a similar dynamic but it is different and I, and I think it must be it must be different maybe because he has this kind of understanding about you know what it means to to be a part of a, a community of essentially refugees right of people who are trying to restitch together their own identities
3: Can you talk about your passage about oils I only I thought about I, I'd only thought about oil as the many cooking oils, hair oils, oils for automobiles and the oils I use to lubricate tools but Reading that passage, I realized, whoa, oils have a lot of uses.
2: Yeah, I mean, use those are some of the principal uses, cooking <laughs> for, for, for machines, for... For for lubrication of, of of like metal tools, that kind of thing. But yeah, the main uh, driver in the book of peanut oil is, in fact, the soap industry. And you know, the soap is it's, it's used for a number of things. It's not just it is the hygiene revolution. So people, people in Europe who had had kind of like not been bathing so much, or you know, as the 19th century, as the 18th century ends and the 19th century begins, starting to change their habits and bathe more. Uh, But soap is also being used in textile manufacturing too. So quite a bit, right? Because they need to use soap to like wash like wool or other types of textiles in in the manufacturing process. So there's all of that um, part of it, but yeah, mostly the oil is for soap.
0: Let's talk a little bit about This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system through broadcast stations in the greater Portland, Vancouver area, including Clackamas, Columbia, Multnomah, and Washington counties in Oregon, and Clark County in Washington. With the cooperation of public safety broadcasters and cable operators, this system informs you of events that pose an immediate threat to your life, health, or property. If this had been an actual emergency, Official information would have followed the alert tone. This test was originated by Clackamas County in Oregon. This concludes this test message.
2: So they abolished the slavery, but it's not uh, in their interest to in- to fully enforce that. And um, well, at any rate, Cajure is not a French territory, but there are a number of people who kind of seek freedom in Cajure and they uh, occasionally oh, would Would you tell them our back.
0: listeners where Cajure is? Yes. Um, what is Cajure? Sorry, yes.
2: Uh, Cajor is the So San, so the French Occupied in this area of Senegal mostly during that Period, Sanri which is in the North and Gore which is I don't, I actually don't know the distance They're Some distance south And Cajor is the territories, the kingdom Basically in between those two points So the French have a This overarching goal To kind of dominate Cajor but They don't want to administer it directly for a number of reasons, it's because it's expensive, but also because then they would have to enforce their own rules about slavery. Right? So, <laughs> so that's the kind of moral slippage. But then, as the kind of as the century goes on, um, you know, we have the Conference of Berlin, uh, and the European powers are sort of carving up, carving up Africa, and slavery. In fact, becomes the pretext to, <laughs> to colonize Africa. That they're saying we're saving everyone from slavery when in fact they've been kind of turning a blind eye to to to, to enslavement which is which in, in fact is being done principally for their own gain so it's a, it's a a, a, a it's a, it's hypocritical it's interesting to 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 kind of un, unpack that those, those logics that are happening especially at the end of the 19th century as i say with like as formal colonialism sort of starts colonialism of africa on a larger scale
0: and there's a railroad in, in the middle of all of this. you say just a, a sentence or two about that?
2: Yeah, so the railroad is, that's another kind of driver of the book, of the of the Latjor and Cajor storyline. The French early on, um, so, you know, all these peanuts are being grown in Cajor, and Cajor grows great peanuts. Like the peanuts are very good quality, but, you know, there are a number of, problems for kind of getting peanuts out of, of the region of of Kejur and also the neighboring kingdom Baol. Um you know they're they're using like camel caravans to bring to bring peanuts to the coast. And sometimes those caravans are being like attacked for different reasons and it is also expensive and, and takes a lot of time. So the French you know say they, they want to build this train, the peanut train through Cajor to more effectively and efficiently um, evacuate the peanut um, harvest, but even at the beginning, it's you know it's also a part of a kind of larger plan to sort of subdue the country, right? <laughs> to subdue the region, and even fits in a larger kind of let's call it imperialist plan to eventually build a train from from Dakar to Algiers, a trans-Saharan railroad, which never, which is never created, but which is explicitly modeled on the American American train, transcontinental train experience. They you know, they're-, they're If you, they're, you don't
0: mind, I just wanna read a quote from the book. This is the French speaking about it. And they say, far from disrupting your activities, we are protecting them. We will respect your property, your morals, your customs, your institutions, we come to you as liberators welcome us as friends i'm just like okay i think we've heard that before i'm <laughs> like okay thank you for answering that
2: yeah that that is uh after the conquest that this 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 thing they posted in villages <laughs> that, yes yeah
1: i was really interested in chapter 16 of sickness with no name basically today we're going through a problem of people being sick and with uh, viruses. Uh, You mentioned that in the Senegalese in June of a particular year began to catch a a disease, especially those people working out in the fields. And you also brought in the fact that there had been other uh, devastating types of illnesses uh, in the world over the centuries. Uh, I think this is very interesting. Could you speak a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I talk a little bit in uh, the book, especially um, in the area, there's a chapter that's quite a bit about the initial phase of French conquest of a different kingdom, of a different kingdom called the Wallow. And then a number, so the French for years, they were kind of trying to, they were kind of trying to uh, put in kind of like puppet kings into kajor so they've been kind of meddling for a long time in their there are a number of wars of succession um and in the middle of that there's a this this huge cholera outbreak this is the uh, I, for, I forget if it's the first or second cholera pandemic but it you know it, it was a it was a pandemic it went around the world uh, and it was really intense in Senegal like I think in some villages on the river there were like one third of, of the population even died and um, after that there was this kind of um, religious revolution <laughs> that happened so there there are all these super fascinating things that emerge from it. Now the chapter that you just mentioned, A Sickness with No Name, is about plant sickness actually so it's about the these plant, the peanut plants that are uh, also dying or are or, or not—they're not dying exactly, but more they're not producing very well, or they're, they're producing peanuts that then shrivel. And so there's the there's a particular French commander who says, you know, we're seeing this 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 sickness in the peanuts—a sickness we have no name for—and that's where the chapter title comes from. But there's definitely whether it's peanut sickness or human sickness, a kind of interplay with the, um, you know, what's happening, the kind of war or the conquest, there, there's a kind of relationship between, between those things often. I hope that answers your question.
3: Why the peanut? Is it because the peanut affixes nitrogen in the soil? Because you know, it was used as a cover crop in the South, as a rotational crop because of that, but all over the world, Places where peanuts were grown For
2: the oil Was it a cheaper crop Why the peanut Why the peanut So yeah I mean I don't think They're they I don't know I don't think they knew that the peanut fixed Nitrogen and I think that The peanut Oil it was a demand For peanut oil so um, I explain a little bit in the Book that the peanut does have a very Like similar chemical Um chemical makeup as olive oil and olive oil had traditionally been used in like the main french soap savon de marseille and um you know olive oil uh, at that time and there there were a number of like frosts that had killed olive trees across europe and because the it's especially the level of oleic acid is very similar to olive oil it it fit well into soap recipes i don't know if you ever If you ever tried to make like soap, you know, different oils make different types of soap. Some are harder, some are like harsher on your skin, you know. So peanut oil was able to kind of be substituted for olive oil on a, on a, a, you know, at a certain percentage. And it helped kind of save the, save the soap industry in France. And it was really that demand for the peanut um, oil itself that drove the cultivation of peanuts in, in West Africa but I don't think they knew anything at all about the peanuts, the peanut as a crop, it's, its its value or properties.
0: Jory Lewis, author of Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. Thank you so much for joining us from across many oceans to uh, tell the story of your book. What's fascinating is that Major political social movements can be stimulated by something that seems so simple and benign. There's so much more to this book and I'm sorry that we couldn't take another half an hour, but thank you for taking time out of your day and we hope that our listeners will get the book and dive into all the nuances. Thank you very much and we hope to talk to you again.
2: Thank you so much. See you next month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed our conversation with author Joy Lewis, who is speaking to us from Senegal, West Africa. Introducing you to books by authors throughout the African diaspora is what Black Book Talk does. We're the only regularly broadcast program devoted to black books in Portland or the rest of Oregon. Please show your support for Black Book Talk and KBOO by contributing to our spring membership drive. Just go to kboo.fm give or text KBOO to 44321 or mail your check to KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon 97214. And know that whatever you give will be matched by a generous donor.
3: you're listening to KBOO
2: Portland, listener-supported community radio. Stay tuned for Shocks of Sheba, up next after these headlines.
3: Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy, jueves 5 de mayo del 2022, en medio de la pandemia, un nuevo informe encuentra que el hambre en el mundo alcanzó un nivel récord en el 2021, incluso antes de que la invasión rusa de Ucrania a principios de este año exacerbara una crisis alimentaria mundial. Pasando al coronavirus, la cantidad de personas que han muerto por COVID-19 en los Estados Unidos ha superado el millón desde que se informó el primer caso en el estado de Washington hace poco más de dos años. Eso es según un recuento de NBC News,